Lord, we are grateful to be able to gather in your name as family, as your brothers and sisters, to worship you, to give you our burdens, to commit our plans and dreams and hopes to you, and ask that you would make them right, and you would love us and walk along with us as you've promised to do. Thank you for that. Help me as I open your word. Forgive my sin things that I've done wrong. Lord, thank you for your abiding grace that can make me um, never worthy, but enter this moment as I should to explain to my family how much you love them. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I'm going to tell you about a church fight. Ever been in a church fight? ugly. Remember years ago, uh, a guy who briefly played for the Lakers and then became a Bible teacher and an evangelist, Jay Carty, said that the nastiest brand of basketball he ever played at any level, including uh, college and the pros, was church league. He got, if I remember the story, he got bit in a church league game. Pretty sure that's a felony of some kind. I don't think you're allowed you know, if you're, if you're much past, past nine months old, there's not a lot of tolerance and understanding for biting. And I'm going to tell you, and it's not, I've, it's not exactly a church fight, but it was a gathering of God's people in a synagogue. And it started out as gatherings of God's people so often do. It started out well and ended in a terrible fight, a fight so violent that it became murderous. Maybe you've read it. And the reason the fight got started is because of something that you have seen all your life. Once I read this in, in a little journal article, it made so much sense of me and my crushed dreams. You ever wonder why little boys, why they're all going to be professionals at their chosen game? Ask a kid, whatever he's into, he's going to play for the local professional team and whatever that is, Okay. I don't know what that would mean in football anymore. Charger, maybe? Um, certainly not a Raider. Um, okay, all right, see? Church fight's going to start right now if I say one more word. But if you ask little boys, little girls too sometimes in my experience, but I'm much more acquainted with, with little guys because that's what I raised, they're going to be Dallas Cowboys and they're going to be top-notch. Junior high, of course they're going to make the team. They're not only going to make the team, they're going to start. They're not only going to make the start, they're going to star. And really, that never quits. These psychologists that discovered this phenomenon are named Dunning and Kruger. And this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that is this. The less you know about something, the more likely you are to think that you're going to be great at it. That's, you know, every seven-year-old who grabbed the family roadster and took it out for a quick spin around the block, he's suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. A few years ago, I was talking to an Army sergeant who was a recruiter, as it turns out, and I asked him what he did for the Army, and he kind of sighed heavily and said, I'm a recruiter. And I said, well, do you enjoy that? Not really. And so we started talking about his career path, and he summed up the Dunning-Kruger effect by saying this. He said, you know, we were all going to be Green Berets. 
Yeah, because when you're 17 and they show you that poster of the guy with the big rifle and the blacked out face, and yeah, of course I can be one of those guys, and then you're mopping decks for the Navy somewhere, right? Very far from SEAL Team 6. That happens everywhere. That's why I went out for wrestling and got crushed. That's why I didn't study for tests. That's why I signed up for calculus. I mean, there's just so many things. You've got your own story. I don't know much about this, so of course it's going to be easy. That's why maybe if you're a web designer, someone's asked you to put a web design together in about 18 hours, right? Just when you have time, just make me a beautiful design. Doesn't work like that. They don't know that because they don't know anything about it. And that exact thing is never more true and never more important than when it comes to spiritual matters. Everyone in the world thinks they're doing better than they are. Now, let's not talk about everyone. Let's talk about you. You are not doing as well spiritually as you think you are. I'm not doing as well spiritually as I think I am. It takes a miracle of God's grace for me to see myself as I am and speak to God as He is. If you want a devotional thought for the rest of the year, ask God for you to see yourself as you really are and ask Him to help you understand as you read the Bible and you pray and talk to Him, ask Him to also help you understand and relate to Him as He is, not as you imagine Him to be. Spiritually speaking, it looks like this. I think that I'm doing as, I think I'm doing better than I am, and I really don't think my sin is that big of a deal. You had that experience? If you haven't, I'm really concerned about you, because <laughs> it's a very, very common thing, and that's actually what started the fight in the synagogue. In Luke chapter 4, we're told about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I want you to read that Bible story with me. Luke chapter 4. In the first part of Luke chapter 4, we're told of the temptation of Jesus. And that's extraordinary good news that Jesus was tempted and did not fall into sin. Whatever weighs you down, whatever trips you up, whatever makes you embarrassed of yourself, whatever area of life makes you realize that you're not actually doing that well at all, maybe just get really sick and tired of yourself, understand this. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, but without sin. Whatever drags you down, whatever trips you up, whatever stains your conscience and makes you ask yourself, how many more times am I going to do this? Jesus faced that very temptation. That category of temptation came crashing into his life, and he withstood it with this amazing, saving, beautiful difference. He faced it down, felt the full weight of that temptation and that enticement, but he did not give in to it, as I have so many times, as you have. That's what the beginning of Luke's gospel tells us. Jesus was tempted. We'll pick up the reading at the very end. In verse 13, it says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, that last little phrase, until an opportune time, tells you what the life of Jesus was like that no one knew about. 
Satan tempted him, just the two of them. He threw everything he had at him, and when the devil was unsuccessful, he withdrew, but not forever. He waited for what he thought would be a better time, a time of advantage. And Jesus, full of that victory, having obeyed his Father perfectly in every way as I haven't, as you haven't, we're told in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Question, how's the ministry going so far? It's good, right? Private success, private victory over sin, now public ministry. He's going into the surrounding synagogues in his region, in the fishing area of Galilee, and people are listening, and people are glorifying him. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. I'd never really paid attention to that until this, uh, these last two weeks. Look carefully at that verse I just read. What was Jesus' habit? What did Jesus do on the weekends? He went to church. That's synagogue, not a church, but the root meaning of a church is assembly, congregation. It's God's people gathered for worship and instruction. Jesus made it a priority to go to synagogue all his life. Now, this is Jesus who's going to have Scripture read to him about him by some guy. You see the humility here? That tells me that if you're serious about being like Jesus, you should commit yourself to doing the things that Jesus did. Jesus did not miss worship. He did not, hear, he did not miss hearing with other people, with sinners like me, the Word of God read and explained. I wonder in his humility, how many times did Jesus sit there listening to Scripture and then somebody explains it? And Jesus has to sit there knowing that's not what that means. You're way off. I'm the point, not what you're saying. This was his habit. He's about 30 years old now. He's been going to synagogue his whole life. The public ministry has now begun. Jesus has been gathered with God's people to hear God's Word, to hear from His Father every Sabbath, every Saturday, all His life. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. Hometown kid has come home. His reputation has preceded him. Nazareth probably, estimates vary, but Nazareth probably was a village no bigger than five acres. In other words, about the same size as the church campus you're sitting on. I've read all kinds of estimates, but the best thing I can find is it was probably just a few hundred people. If you want to look at it this way, there's a decent chance that we and the kids over in the Sunday school class were, were Nazareth. Probably not as big as the congregation in this service. So he's home. And he stands up to read. There, he is selected to do the reading and the explaining. His reputation has preceded him. And in their culture, they stood to read the Word of God out of respect and then sat down to show humility as they tried to explain it. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I believe this is Jesus choosing his passage. And he reads from Isaiah 61, something written 700 years earlier. That's going to tell you what a big moment this is. Jesus found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you look at the passage that Jesus was reading, He cut the reading off right in the middle of the thought because the very next phrase says, to announce also God's vengeance. But He doesn't read that. He only reads good news. He reads astonishingly good news, deeply personal news in his hometown. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, the Lord, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Israel, that would be the year of Jubilee. All debts are canceled. Wouldn't that be great, by the way? Wouldn't you wish this were a jubilee year and on Christmas morning all your debts would be gone? Jesus said from the reading, he read, this is what the Lord is doing. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. See, he read something that was written 700 years earlier. No one knew anyone who knew anyone who was alive when Isaiah wrote that. It was centuries and centuries ago, and now Jesus, in an ordinary Sabbath, in a nondescript synagogue, in a backwater town filled with probably just a few hundred people with a few scattered little houses spread across four or five acres, he said, what I just read to you, Here's the first thing you need to know about the explanation. It's happening right now. I'm the one. I'm the one the prophet had in mind. I personally am fulfilling this prophecy in your sight and in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. My question, how's the ministry going? And you said, I thought you said there's going to be a fight. Oh, there is. At this point, people are sitting back saying, wow, he really made good. You ever go back to your hometown after a long time away? The way that normally looks for a lot of us is high school reunions, right, if you didn't stay. I know I'm in Huntington Beach and everybody tries desperately to stay in town if they were born here, but many of us weren't raised here. So we've had the occasion of going back to reunions. And what's the, what's the big hope if you're going home and seeing all these people you grew up with after many years? What's kind of at the top of your mind? Absolutely. Got to look good. Drive a junker so I'm renting a car, right? 
I'm disappointed by how many of you nodded in agreement and understanding me. Yeah. That's why I had the Bentley. Yeah. Oh, I'm in medicine. You know, just, just give them a little. There's that dynamic. It's not in Jesus' mind. Jesus knows exactly who he is. He just read it to them. He searched out the Scripture and He said what was promised to our people 700 years ago, that the Spirit of the Lord would be heavy on someone. And the Lord Himself, not by that man's initiative, but the Lord Himself would send someone to do extraordinary things. That's me. Look at the things that Jesus said He would do. He would give good news to the poor. He would proclaim liberty to captives. He would give the sight back to the blind. He would set at liberty people who were oppressed. How do you like that job description? Can you do that? What would happen if in your office you stood up tomorrow in staff meeting and said, I just want you to know I'm here to set all of you free. And if you're blind in any way, even physically, good news, I can give you your sight back. Would you do that? He's extraordinary. He reads it and he doesn't go into an archaic discussion of the technical matters of this text and various rabbinical opinions. He announces it's happening right now. And the initial reception is great. They spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, and this is what started the fight. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? See, one of the reasons it's hard to go home again, one reason there's an American saying that you can't go home again, if you've ever heard that, is if you're in a tight community growing up, God help you if you're from a small town. Everybody knows your stuff. And something happened in the pew. They went from amazement at his skill to speak and to read God's word, to explain it. Somebody said, in somebody's heart, something dark happened. They said, wait a second. Isn't this Joseph's boy? Now, what did that mean? Well, see, in a town so small, Jesus had a terrible backstory. Joseph was the town carpenter and mason. There's probably not a single home in Nazareth that Joseph could go into without the home being something he had built himself or some little artifact or tool he had made for those people that he had had his hands on in his shop. He was well known. And Joseph had a girl that he loved dearly. Her name was Mary, and they were engaged to be married. In Jewish culture, they were as good as married. They were only living apart, waiting for the great celebration when Mary would come home to Joseph. And another gospel tells us that in that precious time, when any couple's heart and mind is filled with so many dreams, it was discovered that Mary already had a baby on the way. There are a lot of things that Joseph didn't understand about that. There was one thing he knew for sure. It wasn't his baby. And it never occurred to this man in Nazareth. It never would have occurred to anyone that God was at work. It's absurd. That's about as believable as this auditorium lifting up off its foundation and flying off. It just never crossed his mind. 
if we're engaged to be married and we haven't come together, and I've been faithful because the same gospel tells us that Joseph was a righteous man, I've stayed in my lane, I've kept my vows, I've honored the Lord in the way I've treated you with the utmost respect. You're pregnant? And the gospel says that Joseph was a righteous man, so not wanting to disgrace her publicly, he was thinking of divorcing her secretly. In other words, he's going he's to break it off, and he's going to pick up his shattered life and try to get on with it. In the middle of all that, somehow, all the town knew, these are the whispers, these are the rumors. It looks really, really bad because Mary actually leaves and goes off into the hill country and she stays with family for three months. And what's that tell you? It's a really bad, embarrassing scene, but for reasons that no one can understand, the best guy in town, the carpenter that everybody trust the righteous man who is a leader in his faith community for some reason that nobody can begin to fathom why. He takes her back. And they have their baby. Her baby. See, that would have been the whispers. That would have been the gossip. The women would have said, well, bless his heart, better that he discover this now. Girl like that, you wouldn't want, you'd want heartbreaking as that is, and of course I'm only saying this as a matter of prayer. <laughs> Christians don't gossip, you see, we just share prayer requests. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about it, I'm just, I'm just letting you know the facts so that you can pray more intelligently. Boy, I love that one. We never talk like that unless we're cloaking some vicious, brutal rumor about somebody in the holy garb of prayer. It's awful. He's lucky to be rid of her. What? He, he took her back. And then, of course, there was that impossibly inconvenient imperial decree that they had to go to Bethlehem. By the time they get back home and start up their home in Nazareth, it's just become one of those quiet, heavy secrets that nobody talks about, but everybody knows. This hissing followed Jesus all his life. You can read about it in John chapter 8. He was confronting the Pharisees who were at that point murderous in their intent and in discussing their own spiritual heritage because the Pharisees were the black belts of thinking they were better off spiritually than they actually were. They said this ugly thing to Jesus. They said, hey, we know who our father is. <laughs> you don't. You were blessed enough to have a good man give you his good name, take that wayward young girl in and cover her shame, but you don't even know who your dad is. We do. Our father's Abraham. Don't know about you, Jesus. Someone in the pew said, is not this Joseph's son? And I know that Jesus picked up on it. And he heard the whispers perhaps and he certainly read their hearts because of what he said next. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What does this little proverb mean, physician, heal yourself? Prove it. 
The boy who claims to be Joseph's son, the kid who's got at best a stepfather, you're going to come in, you're going to read the scripture, you choose that scripture and you're going to tell us that you're its personal fulfillment. We don't think Messiah will look anything like that. We're pretty sure Messiah is going to have a clean family record. Do you know what we mean, Jesus? And Jesus said, I know what's in your heart. You're going to tell me to prove it. You're going to ask me to do the same miracles that I've done elsewhere. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now we're going to step back a little bit in Bible history. Stay with me. Because this is the heart of his rebuke. It's the heart of the passage and it's what started the fight. Look. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah that's a great prophet from God that lived 850 years before Jesus. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. If you don't know that story from the Old Testament, let me tell you what's going on. The nation is at its lowest point spiritually and the prophet spoke rainlessness for three and a half years over a land that was already desert. And with no rain for three and a half years, that brought a destructive famine that was killing people everywhere. Jesus says, in those days, there was famine in Israel, and there were many widows in Israel because so many men had died. Verse 26, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, don't lose the point because of all those strange-sounding names. Do you get his point? Where's Sidon? Not Israel. Jesus said, in the days of the prophet, when God was judging our land with famine, there were many widows who had need, but God sent the prophet to only one woman. She was a widow, and she wasn't even from Israel. She was in enemy territory in Sidon. If you know that story... The prophet came to her when she had just about one, enough material to make one more meal. And he told her what to do. And she and her house ate, it says, many days because she simply believed him. Jesus isn't done. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, the very next prophet. And none of them was cleansed. It's hard for me to describe to you what a horror leprosy was in the Old Testament. If you were found to have leprosy at that moment, your life was over. You could not return to your home. You're cut off from family and friends. You're cut off from worship. The synagogue, completely out of the question. Going to temple, not going to happen. In fact, it was such an odious disease and considered so unclean that lepers had a job to do when people approached them in exile. Do you remember what they were supposed to do? A leper seeing people at a distance should yell to them, I'm unclean. Stay away. You know, the only thing you have to do to make a person crazy is put him in solitary confinement. You don't have to mistreat him. You can feed him and give him plenty of rest, but a person will go completely crazy without human contact. That's why we read in the Old Testament of bands of lepers coming together and watching each other die. That's all that they had left. And Jesus is saying, in Israel, there were all kinds of lepers, but 
Only one of them was cleansed in the days of Elisha, and he was Naaman the, what's it say there? The Syrian. Another foreigner. And not just any foreigner, a foreigner from Damascus. A military commander. In other words, a man who, if he could have been fighting and in spite of his leprosy, could have commanded horses and men's and chariot and swords to go into Israel and lay waste to villages. An undeserving man, just like that undeserving widow. They were the only ones that received help and healing from God. When Naaman got the word to go wash himself in a river he considered filthy, he said, listen, don't we have better here in Damascus? But he took the prophet at his word, and he did exactly what he was told by God, and he was cleansed. Now, my question to you is this. Why did Jesus pour gas on this little spark to set this synagogue on fire? All he did was give them good news. He said... The prophecies that were written 700 years ago that a Messiah would come, one sent by God and anointed and empowered by God to do the things that only God could do, to give sight back to people in every sense, spiritually and physically, to take people who were trapped in every way, including by their own sin, and to set them free, to reunite them to their families and their homes and the life that God intended. I'm the one. I am He. And they pushed back and they said, we don't think so. You're an illegitimate boy. You talk well, but we know where you're from. We know how your life got started. And Jesus said, I know what's in your heart, so let me tell you two stories from our history. Let me remind you of a foreign widow who alone received help and supply miraculously because God sent the prophet to her. And let me tell you about someone we would consider an enemy to our people who had it within his authority to command armies against us, who had the humility to come into one of our rivers and do what the prophet said and got up out of that muddy river cleansed. How'd they take it? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Here's a miracle in one verse. Passing through their midst, he went away. Can you see this? The synagogue would have been a very small place, smaller than this section of seating right here, maybe one-third of it. When they heard of foreigners forgiven... When they heard about their own land in famine and a foreign widow being saved, when they heard of a foreign army officer who alone was cleansed from leprosy, someone shouted in the back. And they rushed him and they pushed the Son of God through that little door and they would have taken him according to some rabbinical traditions. The only proper way to stone someone was to throw them off a cliff. And when they broke their legs or knocked themselves unconscious from the impact, then heavy rocks were to be brought over and pitched off the side of the cliff to crush them. And as they would have done so, they intended to praise God as they killed Jesus. The only reason they didn't kill him is because he was not yet willing to die. It was not yet the Father's time. So the angry mob that drove him out of the synagogue suddenly looked around and couldn't find him. He walked right through the middle of them. Why? 
Because listen, in this happy time of Christmas, understand how deep the love and the humility of Jesus really is. Even now, the shadow of the cross lies over his manger. In his first sermon, in his hometown, he announced the good news and people who were nearly as close to God as they thought they were, rose up and pushed back against that message. And here's why. They were told of God's righteousness and they preferred their own. You see, the point of the gospel and the point of the good news of Jesus is this. Jesus is only good news for people who know they need it. Jesus is the very embodiment. He is good news in person. He is every promise that God ever made to you kept. Every bit of it is fulfilled. 2,000 years later, I can stand with the same confidence that Jesus did as his follower and one of his many messengers and tell you it's all true. Every promise God ever made is fulfilled. It receives the word yes in Jesus Christ. That's how the old Pharisee Paul explained it. And that that good news only becomes good news, is only received, and only changes those who know and believe that they need that good news. See, what killed that synagogue and what made them rise from listening with admiration to trying to literally kill the Son of God is they love their own righteousness. And their complete agenda that morning was to come into church, do the right thing, hear the Word of God, and go home unchanged, fully confident and resting in the idea that they had figured it out, that they were good enough. Jesus says the only heroes in the story I'm telling you were the two hapless, hopeless foreigners who were lost a widow on her last meal, an Assyrian soldier about to die with no hope from salvation. The only reason they were saved is because God was gracious to them and they were humble enough to believe that they needed that good news. So when I invite you this Christmas Eve to bring your friends and family, understand in a very real way, I'm inviting you right into the middle of a spiritual battle. Because hardly anyone outside these walls, and perhaps many people inside these walls, see themselves as blind. We don't see ourselves as oppressed. We don't see ourselves as captives in need of a Savior. Jesus is all of that. He's not a helper. He's a rescuer. He's not a coach. He's a Savior. He came to walk right into the middle of your darkness and your oppression and your captivity and keep every promise that God had ever made to you and set you free and give you sight and welcome you into God's family. But none of that will matter to you unless you believe that you need it. And talk to anyone here who was saved as a grown-up, and they will tell you of the struggles and their own self-righteousness and how hard it was. I was just a kid, but I can tell you myself how hard it was for my pride to break and say, I need a Savior, Jesus. Please save me. When that pride finally broke, he did. Because he is exactly who he claimed to be, and every word of the Bible points right back to him. My invitation to you, if you know him, is to keep your heart tender and to remember that you need a Savior today and every day. To not take, not set aside his righteousness and try to clothe yourself in the rags of your own self-righteousness, but to thank him daily 
That without him, you would be blind, you would be oppressed, you would be captive, and you would be poor. And if you're not absolutely certain that you already know him and he's already your savior, here's my invitation. It's all I can do is invite you. I can't coerce you into it. I can't persuade you. I can't talk you into it. I can invite you and ask God to convince you that it's true, that you would turn away from your sin and say to Jesus, I believe what you said. What you said in the synagogue was true then, and it's true for me today. Please, Jesus, save me. And he will. But only if you believe that you need that good news. Can we pray for a minute? If you know Jesus, could I just invite you to close this service by going to him and thanking him? We'd be blind without him. Oppressed, captive, poor without him. With him, we are rich, we have sight, we're at liberty. And if you're not absolutely certain that he's your savior, catch that. It doesn't matter how long you've come to this church or any other. It makes absolutely no difference. If you've read the Bible or whether you've read it more than I have, it makes no difference. The question is, are you trusting Jesus to be the Savior? Are you trusting his righteousness or your own? The symptom of self-righteousness is convincing yourself in some way that you don't need him, that it's not that big of a deal, or maybe that you do, but you can put it off. You'll do it at a better time. Today's your day. If you hear the voice of the Lord and your heart is growing tender to the idea that he needs to save and forgive you, turn to him right now. Never mind anybody else. They won't stand with you in God's presence when God calls you back. It'll be between you and Jesus at that point. So if you don't know him, turn to him with whatever words you have. You don't need magic words. There are none. Say, Jesus, I have sinned. I am a sinner. I'm sorry. Save me. Clean up my heart. Clean up my conscience. Save me. Forgive me. And he will. He will not despise humble people. He will save humble people. The only people that don't receive Jesus' good news are those who don't think they need him. If you turn to him this morning, I'd just ask that you'd let us know that. Use that same connection card. Let us know what you've decided because we want to pray for you and we want to encourage you. Father, turn hearts to you right now, please. Help those who have known you for years to cultivate grateful humility that you would, we would continually be amazed that you would save people like us. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being a sufficient Savior to me and to millions and millions of people. For anyone who doesn't know you, make this their moment. Give them tenderness and humility to turn to you and tell you that they believe. May we celebrate, Lord, when we see the results of what you've told them this morning. In Jesus' name.